Hurricanes are becoming more intense, dumping massive amounts of rain. What this means for cities away from the coast and chasing down extreme weather. Warren Fadley's desire to know more. This is NTWC Live. And welcome to uh, NTWC Live. It is uh, going to be an exciting day today. We've got a lot of good, great folks with us here. Greg Carbon's just in. We have Warren Fadley here today, and of course, Hal Needham and uh, Bill Reed. And we'd like to say a big thank you to all our sponsors, uh, USAA. They make this thing possible. They've helped us with all the conference stuff. South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, the Weather Company, the Weather Boy. Uh, we've had some other folks that have also helped us out as well. So we really appreciate them for really getting with us and making things possible. All of this, the podcast, and of course, the conference. And uh, let's go over to uh, Hal Needham first today. Hal, we want to talk to you and see what's happening with you and of course introducing our guest yeah good morning from galveston boy the heat wave continues here along the gulf coast uh beautiful weather though today hot and humid as you might expect i'm really excited to introduce our first guest today i met him at the national tropical weather conference in south padre this last april warren fadley was the first person to to pursue severe weather and natural disasters in full-time capacity as a journalist consultant, cinematographer, and photographer. He has recently been labeled as America's top storm chaser by multiple media outlets. Warren has likely experienced more assorted severe weather and natural disaster events than any other individual on the planet. Warren, thank you so much for joining us on NTWC Live. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Warren, I mean, you've covered so much stuff. I mean, I, I was curious hearing your story and your background. How did all this start? Like, did you grow up passionate about severe weather or were you more interested in photography and cin cinematography and came in that way? Well, it's a lot of things happen. As I always tell people, I didn't plan to be a storm chaser. There, there were really no storm chasers when I started, a few scientific guys. So storm chasing, uh, I found it. It didn't find me like a lot of people nowadays. But I had always had an adventurous spirit. That was probably the most, dri the most important driving force when I was young. And I fused that with with photojournalism and went out at night here and shot lightning and one thing led to another and then it was tornadoes and hurricanes and before I knew it it was a it was a full-time occupation. Yeah so it sounds like it just kind of grew as you got outdoors and pursued this and got into more and more extreme weather. But yep. um, Warren what is there any one event that really surprised you you know you've experienced so many different types of severe weather extreme weather what stands out to you as something that you absolutely didn't expect and you found yourself maybe in a in a situation that was surprising? Well, most people would think it's tornadoes, but it's really not. The, the biggest events to me are hurricanes. Hurricanes always just amaze me, although I've been chasing them since, what, Gilbert in like 88, I think was my first one. The the amount of power, the amount of destruction to me with a hurricane is is what I find of course, it's it's a tragedy, but it's also as as a journalist and someone who who loves to study severe weather, I, I find them actually absolutely fascinating, and especially storm surge. Storm surge to me has always been my specialty as as a journalist. It's just something about the power of it, and and the amount of of energy generated that you you can't do anything about it. You can't re unless you're somewhere safe. It's not like a tornado where you can suddenly go underground. With the storm surge, it's it's completely overwhelming and unless you have a place to survive you're going to be in a lot of trouble 
Warren, how do you document surge? You were explaining to me in April about how you documented Hurricane Ian last year. I mean, what's your approach? Like, what kind of places do you like to go for really documenting this? Well, I try to find a structure, of course. I, I spend days surveying the area kind of looking at the the engineering of how things are set up and which areas are going to be exposed to to direct wave action and, and which areas may be a little bit uh, sheltered. You may have buildings that will block some of that surge. And that's what I did during Hurricane Ian. I ended up staying in a, in a parking garage uh, to the south of Fort Myers Beach and spent a lot of time in the surge, which we can talk about later, something I'm going to cut back on because of some recent recent developments in storm safety that I found out about, but that's my thing. I love to be in that, that surge to see what it does. There's a lot of things that I see as a journalist that, that no one else would experience unless you were actually there in it and saw how a surge develops and how it progresses and what happens during that period. You know, I've been, been lucky to see going back to Katrina and going back to Andrew, what a surge does. So my, I think my firsthand experience of, of surviving uh, those events is, is really helpful in being able to convey to people what they need to do to stay alive when that kind of surge hits. Yeah, Warren, with video and photo, I mean, how do you try to document this? Do you do time lapses? Do you do before and after photography? Do you just try to have, have video rolling? I mean, how do you, from a cinematography and photography approach, how do you approach documenting a, a big storm surge? Well, all my cameras are waterproof. Uh, I'm waterproof to a certain point, not 100%. I do wear an inflatable uh, vest, and I do need to go out usually into the surge. It's somewhat difficult to, to be in a building and be, be able to get all the angles. So I usually try to limit it to, to waist-deep surge. Unfortunately, with Ian, it was a couple times when it got up to my neck, and the vest kicked in and kept me out of it. But Usually I try to stay out of any area where there's a lot of debris. If there's debris flying through the air, obviously you're going to have to be in more of a sheltered position. If it's just the surge, then it's a little bit different uh, way to, to photograph it. But my goal is to photograph it and, and film it live. I don't do time lapse. I'm using remote, remote cameras now too. And again, being able to show people this and showing them what happens in an actual surge, I think is really important. No, it really is. You know, a lot of people think of hurricanes as palm trees blowing in the wind because that's what they see in the media, right? It's just, it's not that many people have gotten into a surge zone and really documented it. So I think what you're showing people is the most destructive part of a hurricane that many of them have never seen before. Yeah, you have to see it. It's it's like any other major event, whether it's a wildfire or a tornado. People nowadays, because I think because of social media, they have to see things in order to take action. And it's been proven that, that if they see a tornado, they're going to take action. If they're just hearing someone talk about it or there's a warning, they're not, they're not always going to take action. I think it's the same thing with a storm surge. When I show someone a clip from, say, Katrina, where the whole side of a building's gone from a floating barge that broke loose, they'll say, wow, yeah, maybe I should leave next time because that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard of happening. And again, with a surge, any, anything's possible. You just, you just can't really understand underestimate power. Warren, I'm a little bit curious. Have you ever been in situations where you can see people maybe in houses and buildings that are maybe in harm's way? I mean, and if so, how do you handle that? Yeah. When I was driving the day before uh, Ian hit Fort Myers Beach, I was driving up and down the street and bars. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I kind of knew what was going to happen there. I, I, I just a gut feeling. 
And I almost wanted to say something like, man, you people need to get out of here. This is, this is ground zero. I'm not even going to stay here. Uh, although I would have, if I could have found the place, but that was ground zero. So you see these people and you think to yourself, man, you know, what can you tell them? What can you do to get them out of there? And I've learned over the years, you, you really can't. The people that are set on staying are really hard to, to, to motivate to leave. Sure. Lauren, uh, I wanted to ask you one more thing. A lot of times on the news, we'll see people in flood water, either they're trapped there by accident or they're even choosing to walk around and sightsee in flood water. What are some of those dangers? You know, we hear about some of the contaminants, pollutants, or even some, some health problems that can happen from people being exposed to flood water. Well, when I said earlier, I was probably going to spend less time in the surgeon. The big reason is because of Vibrio. Vibrio is a bacteria. It's called a flesh-eating bacteria. During Hurricane Ian, there were, in, in Lee County, which is Fort Myers Beach, there were 28 cases and six people died of this. That's amazing when you think about it. You, you would think, oh, people drowned, people got hit by debris, but bacteria, really? It's a very dangerous bacteria, especially when you get it in a cut. If you get an open cut, it gets in there, you can lose your arm. Uh, it's fast acting. You, you, it, in 48 hours, you can be in intensive care. It's a very, very dangerous organism. It's going up because the the temperature, the water, the, the sea surface temperatures are going up in the Gulf and other, even along the East Coast. And it's something you've really got to pay attention to. And if, you, if you're a news, you're sending a news crew out, don't send anybody out who has open cuts or surgery or pierce, just had piercings or anything that can expose yourself to that bacteria. It's, it's something that I think we're going to have to start talking more about in, in the pre-hurricane talk discussion when it's out there about you don't want to do that. If you get cuts, you've got to be very careful. You're sending news crews out. They've got to have the right protection so they don't end up stepping on nails or getting cuts. And again, I, I, I wouldn't be alarmist, but again, six deaths from that alone just in that one area is, is is really frightening yeah warren that's probably something also for first responders to keep in mind too right someone may have a little cut on their leg or their arm and not even think about it you're saying if you have an open cut you, you just need a small um, opening in your skin and you can have some big health problems if you're exposed to flood water yeah my understanding is that one volunteer from florida went back home and ended up passing away probably just thought oh you know i've got a rash or something but anytime after a hurricane if you start noticing you know the typical infection thing things are swollen it hurts uh, it feels warm it doesn't look right right gets all the redness you need to get help right away because the sooner they can get to that and treat it the better chance you're going to have of of uh, surviving and maybe not losing a limb or going through a lot of extensive surgery to fix it. Warren, this makes me wonder what kind of first aid do you do you take in the field? I mean, you're in dangerous situations. It sounds like you're very well planned. You've thought this stuff out. Do you take a little kit with you? What, what are some essentials that you have with you? Yeah, I do. And I'm also a, a tactical EMT. So I'm always out there hoping I don't have to Hope I don't have to help someone. But for myself, I, I carry a lot of water. After I get out of that surge, I completely rinse everything off. Uh, betadine, I keep that if I get a cut or something. I want to flood that with that as soon as possible and get that that cleaned out. You really the the big thing is you really want to clean any wounds you have. If if you're if you're an EMS, if you're a news person, even even if you're just out there. Uh, surviving the storm you really want to avoid any kind of cut or any kind of pathway to, to for that to get into and again it's not just uh the bacteria you've got a lot of uh, 
industrial type things again like the, the pesticides and and even raw sewage uh during hurricane even that was something that that i witnessed uh, and something you definitely want to stay away from so there's all kinds of it, it's really a witch's brew out there when that surge especially when it first comes in you really want to stay out of it as much as possible warren i appreciate you sharing that i think a lot of people aren't even thinking about contamination of water and um you're, you're giving a, a a good insight there that it's really a public health problem if you get exposed to that. Absolutely. Bill, do you have any questions? Yeah, I got. I, I like this thread here. The uh, uh, there was a, a, a that came front and center during Harvey. The the local officials were emphasizing the the hazards in the water, and uh, they didn't talk about the flesh eating bacteria, but they did have the. I mean, it was such an overwhelming flood. We had a tremendous amount of industrial waste and raw sewage getting in the water. Uh, another point on the, on, on the, like in Florida, where you have a landfall there, you have a, 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 a skewed more towards us elderly folks in the population. Another, uh, that's another good point to get them to leave because us all elderly folks have skin like brittle parchment. And I don't even remember bumping this, but I bled like a stuck pig the other day and I have no idea how I did it. So just getting out of your house in the panic of a flood like that, you're bound to run into things and get cuts. So maybe we can milk this into a, another uh, uh, important uh, pre-storm activity to start educating people that live in, in surge-prone areas. Yeah, I would, I would really like to see, uh, just like there's a surge warning, I would like something included in that about the dangers that, that are in the water. I think that would, I mean, six people, that's, that shouldn't happen. Now we're, we're uh, the weather service, the hurricane center, and the rest of the weather service has been uh, 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 really starting to add more and more to the uh, to the uh, indirect fatalities, which is what I would call that. It's the post storm uh, uh, hazards that get to people. We're losing as many or more people from the indirect activity. So you're right. I, I'll uh, I'll certainly push this forward. <laughs> uh, a little bit of a change of gears. Uh, uh, you mentioned. Uh, Katrina, where where did you post yourself for Katrina? <laughs> well, originally I was in Biloxi, decided to go explore up the coast back up towards Mobile. It was turning around and they turned the contraflow back. I couldn't get back. Oh, uh, no. I would have preferred as a journalist to have been in Biloxi. I was in Biloxi that that morning and saw some crazy stuff. But we ended up staying in in Mobile, which I believe had Mobile Bay. I think we had a 15 foot storm surge and, and high. So it ended up being for me as a photographer and as a journalist, a good chase, but nothing like that morning when I got to Biloxi and, and saw the damage there, which was just mind blowing. Yeah, that, that woke me up to another question there. Have you ever been uh, prohibited from entering an area to do your work by local officials? Sometimes, but being the old newspaper journalist, when I started out, I always find another way to get in. It's pretty rare nowadays because they also know I, I have credentials for being an EMT. And there's been situations where I've been one of the few medical people with any kind of emergency medical training in a location. Uh, sometimes the fire departments will leave and that's kind of a weird feeling uh, to be there and under those circumstances. but. Generally, generally not. It, it just depends on the situation. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't fault them for leaving. I, I remember uh, 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 doing a briefing for Pascagoula in the run-up to Katrina, and the, I asked the. They were wondering about evacuating the 
their command center there. I said, what's your elevation? They said, nine feet. Uh, they can't stay there. They're of no use to anybody if 15 to 20 feet of water overwhelms their command station. So that's probably why you see some places where everybody, they know better, so they're gone. You're, you're right, the people that are left are the ones that will, no matter what you say, aren't going to go. Uh, do you do any international uh, work like uh, our friend Josh Morgerman likes to do? <laughs> no, I leave that to Josh. Uh, international uh chasing is as is, is he said before when we've seen him speak is 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 logistically very difficult you're going to go that distance you know hurricanes or, or typhoons whatever you're chasing other parts of the world are very fickle uh, a lot of people went to guam recently and it just it, it just went through uh eyewall replaced right before we got to guam i forget which which hurricane or which typhoon that was but you know all the guys that went out they were probably disappointed it was good for guam so no i don't do that it's 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 very difficult to time that very time consuming and also very expensive once you get outside the u.s yeah yeah i think you're smart i i would <laughs> i wouldn't even consider doing that um guys the, we have a question from online could i quick uh, yeah, ask that bill great. and then i'll shoot it back to you a question from casper gregory does this flesh eating bacteria exist in all areas along surge prone uh, zones are there places where this issue is more prominent than others? Uh, it's more prominent in areas, uh, the Gulf, of course. The Gulf is is where it began now, like I said before, it's working up, up the East Coast. It's it's more prone in areas where you have step water, salt water. It loves, it's a salt water bacteria. It loves inland areas that are cut off. It loves uh, swampy areas, those type of areas that's where it really the brackish water think of that those areas are the areas that it, it likes as a matter of fact there i was reading a one guy was was fishing and got a shrimp part of a shrimp stuck in his finger the shell and he ended up getting and he almost lost his arm and he i think he was in an inland bay somewhere so yeah anywhere along the gulf you've got to assume that that it's there it sounds like especially bays, estuary sounds, uh, places where you're mixing fresh and salt water and it's very hot water, that's the big concern, right? Yeah, yeah, especially salt water. Uh, any, anywhere you have that water that's not moving a lot, you know, you kind of think of it as stagnating, that's where it loves to breed and that's where you have to be careful. Not, not just hurricanes, I should point this out. This isn't just a hurricane. You hear more about it, I think, because people probably get more injuries. But I believe um, I wrote some notes down here how many people in Florida, I think an average of nine people a year uh, in Florida die from it. From, from the, 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 and of course, this is the same bacteria that people get, like when they eat raw oysters. It's the same uh, type. I think there's 12 different types of this, the bacteria strain. But, but, nine people a year in florida i believe that's the average if, if i got my notes right that die from this so it's not just hurricanes it's it's you know anytime you're in that kind of water in a golf you got to be real careful if you see something looks infected get help right away that's the secret guys those are all the questions we had online right now bill i'll shoot it back to you yeah uh we've got this gigantic uh, uh bloom of sargassum this year uh, what impact does that have on uh, what we've just been talking about uh, from what I've been reading, the scientists say that's going to have a big impact because it it's, it bonds to that. And it also bonds to, to garbage like plastic bottles and, and, and any kind of garbage that may be uh, mixed in there. So, you know, instead of just floating around on its own in the ocean, willy nilly, when it can cling on to something and travel in, 
uh, that's a problem. And, and this is something people should probably do a little bit more research on their own. If you, if you see that, uh, Sargasso coming in, you want to be real careful, not, not to go in it. I would keep the kids away from it, keep animals away from it, uh, and try to avoid it. And I know, I think this year, supposedly it's, it's supposed to be a pretty bad, bad, uh, run of it. So that's something you really want to avoid. And there are other types of, uh, bacteria out there you know the uh the brio is just one of them but there's several others that are starting to to kind of become a problem as the water's getting warmer wow uh, hal you've been uh tracking the sar uh, sargasso what's the latest on that i haven't heard anything recently it's really nice you know aoml the atlantic oceanographic and meteorological laboratory out of miami they do an experimental weekly forecast of inundation risk and um th they've backed off a little bit there is i'd say a moderate amount of sargasm in the central gulf but right now the risk of inundation is low for the entire gulf coast except for a small part of Western Florida near Apalachee Bay, th this week they said there's a medium risk of inundation there, but they've backed it off a little bit, but it still seems like there's a lot of sargasm in the Caribbean. There was a record amount this spring, and so the concern is that coming up the Yucatan Channel and then maybe impacting the Gulf or even more likely the Florida Keys over through South Florida. Nice. It's always something, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Warren, a last question. When, when you, uh, when you, you know, a major surge event just happened. You have all this footage. Uh, who's contacting you for that? I mean, obviously, media outlets would be very interested. Like, are insurance interest in, interested as well? Any people in the scientific community that are uh, studying storm surge or coastal hazards? Oh, yeah, everybody. Uh, a lot of it I donate to, say, weather service. Over the years, I've always done that. Any type of, of government interest where it's, it's public awareness, uh, that's always, I always give it away to them. I don't charge anything. Uh, I have an agent, I have two who, worldwide agent who sells it to educational or, or TV shows. You might see it. I saw some on Discovery the other day for a program. And and I got to make a little bit of money back. I mean, most most of what I do, it's, it comes out of my own pocket. And, and it's nice to get a little bit of money back because this gets expensive. But yeah, I, I especially like it when when it's used for public awareness. That, that I enjoy, and it sounds bad more than the money. I mean, if, if people get to see this and and if one person decides to leave a, a storm surge area because I saw my footage, you know, that's that's great. Yeah, I think people, again, they're, they're thinking worst case scenario, they have some wind damage to their house or there's a, a tree on their house. And, and, you know, from spending time in these big surge zones, uh, people come back sometimes and there's just a slab. And in the worst cases, they're looking at a slab and someone says, oh, that isn't where your house was. Your house was in another place, right? I mean, it's like a lunar landscape, right? Everything's gone in some cases. Oh yeah, I've, I've drove through, I don't remember which hurricane it was, but Crystal Beach. Um, Mike, that was hurricane. I was Ike, thank you, thank you. And I barely got out of there. And again, it's one of these things, I knew what was gonna happen there and it, it happened. And I got the last ferry to get across to Galveston, but the water was already coming up to the bottom of the car. And you talk about being, like, oh, oh man, what am I going to do? Yeah, I saw a water tower in the distance and I wondered if I could climb up that. I just got out of there and we know it was, it, parts of it was moonscape. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's a storm is something you can't, can't mess around with. And, and again, year after year people, you have so many people, new people moving into these areas. I mean, the population numbers for, for new residents is, 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 is the highest it's ever been. And these people have never seen this. They don't even know, you know, surge. They think of it like a wave, a little tiny wave or something. And, and 
I, you, it's it's very difficult to relay that to people of, of the force. And there's there it's been 15 years now since Ike, and there is more properties on the Bolivar now than there was then. Yep. Still a sandbar. If you ever go there again, instead of trying to catch the last ferry, go back the other way and get up on High Island. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that was a that was a lesson learned. Won't do that again. Of course, you got the snakes to contend with if you go up on High Island. Snakes, uh. lots of water moccasins, rattlesnakes, all the good boys. Oh yeah, I've seen those in the water. Well, Warren, it's been been a great chat. Hang around with us if you can, because we're gonna. Uh, do a couple of other things, uh, talk with Greg, and then we'll wrap it up towards the end and maybe some other questions will come up. Sounds good. I, I really love talking about this and hopefully uh, it'll do some good. Okay. Hal, why don't you uh, uh, do your geo track, pop back to me and I'll do a quick tropical update and then give it to Greg. Well, that sounds great, everyone. Uh, wow. Uh, I, such a valuable uh conversation there with Warren. I mean, not that many people have really been in storm surge, certainly to, to document it as well as he has. And again, like he was saying, the population has just exploded mm -hmm. in our coastal areas. A lot of people don't even really understand what uh, what storm surge is. So really cool stuff. Well, we're talking a lot today about flooding. Warren was talking about massive storm surge floods. Greg's going to be talking about mm -hmm. inland flooding. We've seen a lot of both of them over the past decade along the Gulf Coast and the Southeast Atlantic Coast as well. And if you spent time in a flood zone, you've definitely seen flooded out cars. And so we focus so much on the buildings and the residences that are flooded, but you spend time in a flood zone, you see a lot of abandoned cars. Like I saw last year in these pictures from Hurricane Ian, some a statistic I just learned about with inland flooding is that during Hurricane Harvey in 2017, as many as 300,000 to 500,000 cars in Southeast Texas were lost. That's as many as a half million cars were flooded out. And so last week I had the pleasure of meeting with Rahel um, Abraham in Houston. She's a chemical engineer, but she's also a Hurricane Harvey flood victim turned entrepreneur and innovator. She lost her car and her building, her residence was flooded in Hurricane Harvey. And she knew so many people that had flooded out cars. So she decided to do something about it. And she innovated something called ClimaGuard. So ClimaGuard is this waterproof bag. It's a very large, durable, waterproof bag that can zip around your car, can zip around artwork, pianos, anything that's too big to take with you when you evacuate, ClimaGuard can zip around and it has anchors to keep that stuff from floating away. It's a product that she spent a couple years innovating and now it's really taking off. A lot of people in flood prone areas are interested in it. And one of the cool things about it, it's actually small enough to fit in your trunk. So you can have a climate guard in your trunk. If you live in a flood prone area, you can quickly zip up your vehicle uh, so that you don't lose your vehicle in flooding. So really interesting innovation there. And the cost of climate guard, typically around $400. That's cheaper than your deductible you're probably gonna pay if your car gets flooded out. Um, we recorded a podcast together. This is GeoTrek podcast number 73, from flood victim to innovator, Rahel Abraham and ClimaGuard. And the caption there, Hurricane Harvey flood victim, <clears throat> Rahel Abraham innovated a large waterproof bag that zips around cars and other large valuable items like grand pianos. Her Houston-based product is now gain gaining widespread attention as it promises to make flood-prone communities around the world more resilient. You can go to their website there, climaguard.co. That's climaguard.co. And um, really see what they're doing. But again, we talked on the podcast about if you get a flooded out car 
your insurance company might give you eight, nine thousand dollars. Now, what are you? How are you going to replace what you had for maybe a check of eight thousand, nine thousand dollars in a big flood like Harvey? A lot of the cars that are sold on used car lots are also flood damaged cars, and so something like ClimaGuard it can just avoid this whole nightmare by just sealing your car basically and keeping it from flooding. So a really cool innovation. And uh, lastly, with the GeoTrek podcast, we're constantly doing stories about extreme weather and natural disasters not covered by the mainstream media. So we really want to get into the physical processes behind extreme weather and natural disasters, what their impacts are in society, and then how we can mitigate those losses in products like ClimaGuard. So check out our podcast. We're also on uh, a lot of social media channels as well. The podcast is on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts, it's now ranked as the number one podcast for natural disasters, according to Feedspot. So um, I, I think a timely topic this week as we talk about coastal flooding with Warren and, and now we're going to, uh, I think later in the show, be talking about inland flooding with Greg. So uh, thanks for your attention, everyone. Always great to share here on the National Tropical Weather Conference Live. Our next guest is uh, Greg Carbon. I've known Greg for, for, for quite a while. We've uh, uh, we used to coordinate over the the hotlines when I was MIC in Houston, and he was he was uh, in the hot seat up at the Storm Prediction Center. Uh, I guess it's been about a decade, hasn't it now, uh, Greg, since you moved on to uh, uh, WPC? And uh, <clears throat> the bad weather never leaves you. That's what we focus on in our in our world, and uh, and, and heavy rain is is that. And uh, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, and I noticed. Uh, uh, there was a couple of places up in my neck of the woods that had close to 10 inches of rain over the last couple of days. So, Greg, welcome to the show. <clears throat> Thanks, Bill. Thanks, everyone. It's an honor to be here this morning. Um, I'm actually coming to you uh, from uh, a somewhat tropical uh, Vermont uh, this morning. I know, Bill, you have connections with New Hampshire. I have family up here. Um, not, It's not a getaway vacation by any means. I've got aging parents, uh, in-laws who have been trying to help through uh, that process, uh, helping my wife here. Uh, over the past few weeks. And uh, while it's a nice destination, it's not necessarily the, the most ideal situation. But um, in our new age, we can we can uh, kind of get a lot of work done remote. And uh, and that's what I'm doing here uh, this week and, and next. Um, so it's been about seven years uh, at, at WPC. And, um, you know, over over 35 years in, in the business uh, of weather. And I was listening to Warren and I'm thinking, you know, toxic water toxic bacteria in water uh seaweed expansion on the gulf coast um in incredible heat smoke um bringing uh air quality down to very dangerous levels across the midwest um you think you think there's a message in this somewhere <laughs> it's just like it's uh it, it seems like a it's just a, an increase in these extremes, um, and that puts a lot of pressure on on meteorologists. It's really interesting from the perspective that, you know, some days you can't necessarily predict what the big weather story will be. Um, you know, we uh, my background is specialized in severe weather, tornadoes, hail, and wind. Uh, going to WPC with a focus on on extreme precipitation and winter weather. Um, but every once in a while, you know, the, the, you get the kind of unexpected attention to something uh, unrelated to those events like the smoke. Um, or even a few years ago, and it coming up again next year, uh, the forecasts uh, for uh, for the total eclipse. What, what's the, you know, what are we looking at as far as, uh, um, you know, likelihood of, of cloudiness at locations where the eclipse will pass? So 
I'm just constantly fascinated by meteorology and constantly amazed at how many different aspects of, of weather affect our, our lives every day. Um, and that's what keeps me going. Hey, my, my target is Lamb Passes, Texas. Yeah. So what's the weather going to be there? You have a very good probability, as you've probably seen, you know, that somebody's done the climatology as far as cloudiness goes. And the further southwest along that that total totality path, uh, the higher the likelihood you'll you'll not have to worry about clouds. You move northeast up into New England, there's a better than even chance you're going to be dealing with some cloudiness, especially in April. Yeah, Mike, it, it's it, the, the a big return flow day would be bad for me. You'd get the the. Yeah, over stratus won't break up quick enough if you get one right. of those. And the, the other thing, if we're still in the El Nino thing, we'll have a big subtropical uh, jet probability. So you might have a lot of high level. Moisture. Yeah, I've got a fallback though. I like to play golf at Land Passes, so I can go. There you go. <laughs> on this one, except it'll probably cost more at the hotel. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's interesting about this remote work. I'm actually at our place in New Mexico, and and part of that, it, it, everybody's accusing me of. Uh, of uh, decamping Houston to get out of the heat, but it was a long planned trip. We've got mother-in-law who still uh, refuses to move out of her house and it's very rural. So we come up here fairly often now. That's that's the same situation I'm in here. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, the latest, the, the new study that showed the, that updated the Atlas on uh, return rates of precipitation yeah. Have you guys or have you guys been uh, incorporating uh, some of the findings from that into how you uh, uh, do your uh, uh, QPF and excessive rain outlooks these days? Yeah, so so that's um, there was an article, if you didn't see it just the other day, uh, uh, regarding the uh, increased uh, frequency of extreme rainfall and the fact that the current atlas um, and that, that, that NOAA has available to it um doesn't really account for climate change it, it it basically looks at historical events and then tries to extrapolate those events um with respect to extreme rainfall and there are error bars on that calculation um one thing we've seen in the last couple of years so i was tracking um annual precipitation monthly precipitation over primarily the the lower 48 states trying to identify uh, aerial coverage of extreme events, which are most often associated with tropical cyclones. Um, but we've gone through a couple of uh, a couple of years now where uh, the extreme nature, the extensive uh, uh, heavy precipitation events have been uh, fewer um, and farther uh, between. Now it only takes one or two tropical storms in a season to to change that. but um, it's been an interesting couple of years here, about a year and a half now where we have not seen, um, the extreme precipitation coverage that we saw, uh, say, earlier on um, a few years back, and it's probably cyclic in nature. What we have seen uh, recently um, are these events where the aerial coverage is very small, but the amount of precipitation is extremely high. So, you know, April, I think, was uh, Fort Lauderdale, um, you know, just an incredible rainfall event there where you set up the atmospheric ingredients to support repeat, very extreme precipitation rates, three to five inches an hour for a few hours. And all of a sudden you're talking 15 to 20 inches of rain, which just inundates just any, anywhere, basically, uh, except for maybe right along the immediate coast. So you saw the airport close there. Um, and then we just had another event in Pensacola, I think, recently uh, in, 
uh, earlier in the month with uh, 15 inches of rain or so uh, in a few hours, very similar setup with back building convection. To answer your question with respect to understanding these events, what I find quite remarkable is that the numerical models are not too bad with respect to the physics equations being able to generate these amounts of rainfall. Now, they're, they're not going to, there's no such thing as a perfect forecast, right? And when you're talking about these really small scale events, you're not likely to nail that with much lead time whatsoever. But the numerical models do seem to have the capability to produce these amounts of rain. Um, they just don't necessarily put it at the right place or in the right time. So, so I think we have the, the beginning of, of a toolkit available to us that can better identify where we will, you know, potentially see events that are, you know, outside of observational evidence of the past, but we can begin to message perhaps, you know, this is an environment that's extremely favorable later today or into tonight, similar to the way we do tornadoes. Uh, and that's kind of how we deal with these extreme rainfall events, very similar to the way SPC deals with tornado events. We're talking probabilistically, here's the level of confidence we have that the rainfall you see today could exceed the flash flood guidance, which is essentially a, a rate of rain uh, in which the underlying soil conditions can no longer handle it and you're going to have runoff. Um, there's a lot of work going on in trying to better understand climate change with respect to especially metropolitan uh, stormwater runoff, trying to design systems that can handle stormwater runoff for the, the, the coming decades uh, from events that, you know, are what we would consider quite extreme rainfall, rainfall rates anywhere from two to six inches in an hour. Um, it, it really is a new world. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, but we're doing it. We're working on these uh, these precipitation forecast challenges uh, for the future. But yeah, that's, that's uh, that resonates real well in the Houston Galveston area. Yeah. The 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 uh, drainage uh, engineering for the whole area is designed around the old 1965 uh, return frequencies. Right. And, right. And uh, just empirically, we've known for couple of decades now that those are just not good so and the new data uh, pointed out the was the so-called nuisance rains that caused the drainage system to become overwhelmed are now becoming a bigger and bigger problem and getting added to that is the combination of subsidence and sea level rise due to warmer water yeah uh, the ability to drain uh, places like Galveston Island and the immediate coastal communities on even a, a typical day that you wouldn't normally get that excited about has become important. Yep. We recently had a really uh, interesting meeting uh, with some folks in Texas that are that are really uh, focused on this challenge of trying to identify uh, when the risk may increase uh, with regard to stormwater runoff to the extent where you might be able to begin to close roadways so people aren't driving into vulnerable low-lying areas. Um, and there's there's some promise there that we have the, you know, there's definitely promise that we're beginning to develop some of the tools necessary uh, to make these decisions in advance. That's that's great. The uh, uh, has there been any, any real changes to the flash flood guidance you use since maybe 10, 15 years ago? I haven't really kept up with that. Well, we should we should definitely follow up um, after this because there is a new kind of a, a center focused on. 
uh, riverine flooding, and we have a national water model that now runs on the on the supercomputer, uh, has uh, 25 million stream points in it. Uh, there's an underlying um, uh, numerical model grid for for what they call the hydro fabric, which basically gives you some indication of the the response in basins. I am not the expert on riverine flooding, but the National Water Center is spinning up their we uh, water prediction operations division. I believe Russ Barton is the director of that, and we should get him on uh, and, and talk a little bit more about what they're doing with regard to. Uh, uh, understanding, uh, you know, rapid runoff and then longer-term flood issues uh, with respect to different basins. Uh, it's definitely a complex problem. Unlike the tornado problem, um, it kind of, you know, you don't really need uh, antecedent underlying conditions to support tornado genesis. But with respect to runoff and, and damaging flooding, you kind of need to understand the underlying antecedent conditions uh, in order to better predict uh, flooding. And so it is a it is a combination of hydrology and meteorology. I kind of come to that problem from the meteorology side, uh, but really to get to the to get to the uh, the the, uh, the answers and, and better forecasts, you really need hydrologists and meteorologists working together. And that's what WPC has been doing over the last few years, uh, working closely with the hydrologists now at the National Water Center, trying to understand uh, how the, the water model uh, behaves under different conditions. Uh, we still have a large amount of expertise at WPC with respect to the quantitative precipitation forecasts and also understanding how those forecasts play into the short-term, relatively short-term uh, rapid onset or flash flooding. But the water center is really developing out uh, and improving on the science of hydrology, and it really takes both uh, to, to get to this challenge. That, that's real interesting. Thanks for the tip on the progress at the water center. I think yeah. that, that, that's been one of our biggest concerns in, in, in places here in South Texas is this very small basins that cause... Right most damage and deaths when they flood is just they're on the scale of a few kilometers right right we get a lot of a lot of concern sometimes from uh, from the national weather service river forecast centers they're the ones that you know they're basically looking at the, at these basins with respect to flood potential and there's a lot of sensitivity as to where the forecast maximum rainfall occurs with respect to basin. If it's in this basin, it may not be a problem. If it's in a neighboring basin, it could be a significant problem. So the the, the location of, of these extremes is very, very uh, sensitive. Uh, the output is sensitive to the location. Yeah, uh, uh, steering us back into the into the tropical cyclone mode, uh, the uh, I was just uh, in awe of the uh, model forecast, both the several models of the extreme amounts uh, uh, as much as two days in advance of when the big rains occurred over Houston from a stalling Harvey. Uh, I think I, that made a difference. People really were aware of what was getting ready to happen there. It's just like everyone else, if they hadn't experienced before, it would caught them by surprise, uh, maybe. Um, uh what do you guys do different when you forecast the QPF that goes out in the products for the uh, in the advisories for the hurricane? So we work real closely with the National Hurricane Center. WPC provides the rainfall statement uh, associated with every tropical cyclone advisory. 
Um, again, there's, there's uh, decades of experience uh, predicting rainfall and everybody realizes it's not a perfect, uh, perfect forecast. There's always going to be uncertainty associated with these forecasts. Uh, pattern recognition, you know, uh, past storms and their behavior. Uh, we've recently started looking at the displacement, similar to what the Hurricane Center does with their track forecasts. We look at uh, how does our forecast with respect to high-end rainfall uh, verify uh, say three days out, you know, if we're forecasting a six inch ISO high at an area of six inches or more of rainfall in the, in the forecast, when we, when we have the realization of the actual uh, event and the, and the observations from uh, rain gauges, how does that six inch uh, footprint essentially verify with respect to the forecast? And so we, we've, we found that, and it's no surprise, it makes complete sense that our, our displacement error with respect to these high-end precipitation forecasts mirrors that of the track error in, in the hurricane forecast. And that's because we do adjust the QPF based on the latest track forecast from the National Hurricane Center. So we're working hand in hand and, um, and it looks like our error, our error displacement is very similar to track displacement. So the better we get at forecasting track, hopefully the better we get at forecasting QPF. That is interesting. Uh, is, is anybody exploring, uh, trying something similar to what's done with storm surge, uh, run a, a multiple simulations to come up with a like an exceedance probability uh, that could yes. be okay? And that yeah. not a deterministic answer, but here's the here's the here's the risk area that might be impacted. Yes. So, um, and I know Warren was talking about surge and, and the forecast for surge and there's been a lot of work done at the National Hurricane Center to better uh, message the dangers uh, from, from storm surge. Uh, we use, we, basically where we started this conversation from, uh, we use the exceedance probability uh, to better understand the unusual or, you know, rarity of an upcoming event, but we apply a probabilistic forecast to that. So if you go to our webpage, um, if you go to the precipitation forecast at the bottom of that map, there's a link uh, to the what we call the extreme precipitation monitor. You can go into that precipitation monitor. You can look at 24 hour uh, or 72 hour uh, forecast amounts of rainfall. And then you can look at where those forecasts um, how those forecasts would be would be um, realized in in terms of the ex annual recurrence uh, probability. So, in other words, uh, if if you're if you're if you're forecasting precipitation in the ensemble mean uh, that is uh, say a once in a hundred year event or a, a one percent probability in any year. Um, you can also look at the higher end rainfall amounts associated with that ensemble, which we know actually better handle tropical rainfall. In other words, the, the forecast is usually kind of a consensus of, of a variety of model data. When you're dealing with a tropical cyclone, you're usually dealing with the higher end, more efficient rainfall processes. So that, that interface on the web allows you to bump up uh, the rainfall to the 90th percentile in the forecast, and then look at what the annual recurrence interval is for that rainfall. So, you know, are we are we talking a one in 25 year? We're we talking a one in a 50 year? And again, it's we got to be careful because we know the climate is changing, and that those recurrence intervals are based on historical observations. Um, 
but it does allow you better situational awareness uh, to answer the question, how unusual is this rainfall forecast? Yeah, that's interesting about the the the, the return frequencies is based only on 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 the the data set from the past. Uh, maybe we should be updating those atlases on a more frequent basis. So even if there is change still coming down the road, that's it's a better estimate than than one that's starting to get twenty years old. Well, that work is being done, um, and and so there is some ongoing research now to better uh, apply these frequency distributions um, uh, and account for a changing climate. Wow. And of course, every day we gather more data, right? So, um, yeah, that work is being done by NOAA. Interesting. Hal, jump in here. Looks like you have something on your mind. Yeah, you know, we have a, another question here from Casper Gregory over in Florida. He asked, has the rapid refresh forecast system or the RRFS data been used by the WPC? If so, how is it performed compared to the other rapid refresh models currently in use? That's a great question. And uh, there's an ongoing experiment uh, we have every every warm season, every year, called the flash flood and intense rainfall uh, experiment. We've got about, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 people uh, on site. And they've been, obviously, with uh, the recent uh, events with COVID, they've, they've done this every year uh, up until this year. They were remote uh, the last couple of years. Today, this week, they're doing a hybrid uh, where some people are remote, some people are at WPC. And they're doing a, a, a detailed evaluation of uh, high-resolution numerical model and ensemble forecast uh, for, for precipitation. Um, like any model or ensemble system, you're going to have days in which it performs remarkably well uh, in, in retrospect, and then you're going to have days where it doesn't perform well at all. Uh, and the key is, I think, having forecasters evaluate this information and understand, you know, under what regimes or what environments do I want to rely on this uh, this guidance and information? And, and do I know that there are, reg there are certain uh, regimes uh, where it, it's not reliable? Um, so again, I think what's really challenging to the forecaster is pulling signal from noise, um, looking at where the model is generating a high-end event, and then looking at what the atmosphere's current state is and trying to understand, make that diagnosis for what is, what's the current state of the atmosphere and why would this model be correct in this particular scenario or why would it be incorrect? Should I buy into it or should I not? Um, I will say for a number of events we've seen uh, this year so far, um, there have been some very remarkably good forecasts from, uh, from some of the high-res ensemble guidance. But again, for every one of those successes, I bet you I can find two, uh, two at least two events where the model puts a, a footprint of a foot of rain in, in 12 hours or whatever, and, uh, and you may not even have a drop. So, so we've got a real challenge there. We've got to understand models are very dynamic, just like the atmosphere. Um, ensemble systems are incredibly powerful. Um, and but so is the human in trying to understand pattern and match the diagnosis to the current uh, model output and trying to better understand is this is this a reliable forecast that I can I can message on or is this something we have to be a little wary about and I think for the most part at the end of the day forecasters are still relatively wary uh, because there is no such thing as a perfect forecast from a numerical model. Yeah, Greg, I also wanted to uh, thank you for that that detail that, that really helps us understand uh, the situation better. I also wanted to ask you about on the ground flood impacts 
in places that people may not picture tropical flood risk, inland places of New England, the mid-Atlantic states. Uh, you're in Vermont. I think, was it Hurricane Irene back in 2011? There were enormous flood impacts. Is that something that is fairly expected in that part of the world or a, a flood like that? Did that take a lot of people off guard? That was an incredibly devastating event for up here. Uh, Vermont also kind of set the set the bar, I think, as far as recovery. Uh, they had they had incredible infrastructure damage up here, um, and they were able to turn around and and, and recover uh, during the uh, late part of the, uh, the the season, and even into the winter months. They had to deal with uh, road out roads being washed out and, and infrastructure damage. Um, What's interesting about Irene uh, is that the antecedent conditions, we talked about that already and how important antecedent conditions are, um, really set the stage for, for the disaster that they had here. And well above normal precipitation through the summer into the fall, and then you set up with a, you know, a very, very uh, intense uh, hurricane coming directly up into interior New England. You add to that the terrain, the influence of terrain and orographic lift to that moist tropical air. And, and you basically had, you know, wouldn't necessarily call those extreme rainfall amounts, uh, but they did have six, seven inches of rain in, in about six or seven hours. And uh, you add the fact that it was incredibly moist, the, 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 the soil was saturated, and then you put the fact that you got terrain, this is falling in the mountainous areas, and then that water just washes down. We see that also in places like Puerto Rico, you know, um, where terrain plays a big factor in the ferocity or the magnitude of the, the flash flood event that occurs. Um, growing up here, I, I do remember uh, MCS activity during the summer uh, coming along and dumping six, seven inches of rain over a very short period of time over a very focused area uh, and washing out dirt roads. And it seems like, you know, it, it does occur. I think Irene is a special case where it occurred over a much larger scale uh, for the state and parts right. of New York. Yep. Had had 2011 been a relatively dry year in Vermont or dry summer up to Irene, how would have the flood impacts do you think been different if you put Irene's rains on a drier soil. I think that probably would have been slightly less uh, impact than what they saw with uh, with the actual event. Um, still, the rainfall amounts were extreme with Irene, and they came in a very short period of time. And again, terrain will also play an influence on that. Uh, but there might have been, you know, a few hours there where you could have you could have absorbed some of that rainfall early. Uh, but basically. The, the, the soil here was saturated for Irene so that it immediately started running off and immediately started come causing causing issues. So, um, you know, it's it's hard to say in hindsight. That's a really interesting question from the perspective of, you know, post-event modeling. Um, and again, that gets into the hydrology aspect of, of the science. And I think that's an area that could be, uh, could be looked at, um, you know, looking at yeah. the antecedent conditions and how that affects out the outcome. I was actually still director when that occurred. I had a couple of points. They, Vermont invited me to come up and speak at their emergency management conference uh, roughly a year later. And uh, just like you said, it was just amazing how much had, had been restored. There were still some roads out. Uh, another factor that played into the, the severity of the flooding is the, the excessive rain rates were moving from the bottom of the basin to the top. So you've already loaded the bottom of the basin with water and you're putting new water coming down the basin from on the top, which uh, creates a, a higher flood wave when it gets there. And yep. they, I don't ever, I don't think a single person there uh, 
talked about it would have been less if it had been drier. So I think they were focused correctly on the rain rate and amount combined being the excessive part there. The, the one question I had, do you have, do you find any differences in the uh, skill of forecasting the rainfall on the, the Gulf Coast scenario of the, the core of the, of the storm causing the heavy rain and, and, and monitoring the slow motion of that versus the rapid moving storms and the, the pre-rains and, and et cetera coming up in, in like New England? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question, Bill. I mean, you look at, um, I, I can think of successes and failures just like, or, you know, just like forecasts from, from the models. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, Ida is a really good example of a success. Um, I had the signal that uh, Hurricane Hurricane Ida was going to uh, transition to extratropical as it moved up into the Ohio Valley and, and New York. And the forecasts, especially the short-term forecast for the New York City metropolitan area were exceptional in that case. But even, even 24, 48, 72 hours out, there was a very good signal that this system was bringing, you know, well above normal uh, moisture with it. And it was going to interact or with a with a stalled front across uh, across parts of the mid Atlantic and Northeast, and that you're going to run into some real uh, extreme rainfall uh, with that. Uh, one of the better uh, onshore forecasts, and and even after landfall forecasts, I can think of is Hurricane Florence uh, in in the Carolinas. Uh, the the rainfall amounts there were record rainfall. I mean, you're talking about we're we're, we're you know you're always sort of second guessing yourself when you begin to forecast rainfall amounts that are state records um, and and that maybe have not been experienced before. Harvey's a, a case where we kept worrying that we were going too high, too high, and then the new forecast guidance would come in and we're like, no, we're not. Uh, this is this is looking really bad. Um, so every case is different, right? You know this. Every event has these subtleties that sometimes you can see them and you can account for them, and other times it's hindsight, uh, and, and you learn. Yeah. Oh, good old Harvey. I, at my age, I forget a lot of short-term details, but 45.34 inches. Yeah, are you remember that. Embedded in the head. And I remember very well, we were chatting in real time with that one, yeah. I think I sent you the picture when the water was on the porch. Right, um, yeah. So, well, thanks, Greg. Uh, looks like we're coming up on the top of the hour. Hal, you want to wrap us up? Yeah, thanks, everyone. This was a great episode. I mean, I just love the conversations we had. Uh, Greg, thanks for sharing all those insights on inland flooding and, and really where we're at with the state of the science. Warren, man, I'm just uh, blown away by how much amazing work you've done, especially documenting storm surges. I think that's one of the hardest hazards to document. And I'm, I'm excited to look into uh, some of the work that you've done and, and see more of these pics and videos that you shot. Um, everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. We, we love to bring you the latest science and have these discussions. We're trying to be very uh, discussion-oriented this year uh, just to have these, these great uh, conversations. And like Casper Gregory did today, you can submit your questions live online to be part of this interactive episode. So everyone, thanks for tuning in to NTWC Live. We'll catch you next week when we'll be back at the same time in the same place. All right. Thanks, want, to make, want to make sure that Thank we you. say uh, hello to everybody. Thank you so much, Greg, and of course, uh, Warren, for uh, being here today. We want to also remind everyone that it's USAA, it's South Padre Island, a Tourist Bureau and Convention Center, the weather company and the weather boy that helped us make this possible. Join us again in a couple of weeks. We're going to take a little bit of a break next week since it's uh, holiday time, and we'll be back with another great program for you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of NTWC Live Hurricane Center Podcast. 
If you did, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. And join us next week. This is NTWC Live.